Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grown Ups Forum and your host for today. We also welcome our listening audience and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Our program tonight is Elderhood. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers. Louise Aronson is a geriatrician, educator, professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, and author of the very popular book, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. Janara Nirenberg will be interviewing Louise. She's a journalist at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and Garrison Institute, author of the forthcoming book, Divergent Mind and graduate of Harvard School of Public Health and UC Berkeley. Please welcome Louise Aronson and Janera Nirenberg. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for coming tonight. And thank you, Denise, and to the whole staff at the Commonwealth Club. For listeners at home, we're looking at a packed, sold-out room of 120 attendees. And I just want to give another round of applause to our distinguished guest, Louise Aronson. Thank you so much. And welcome. (laughs) Thank you. So we're going to dive right in and, you know, talk about the the title of your book, Elderhood. And I wonder if you can define the term for us and what that means to you. Well, I actually started out with a different term. I started out with oldhood. Um, Yeah, that was a common response. Um, (laughs) And I wanted to use the term oldhood because I wanted to reform the word old. But it turned out I was going about it the wrong way. My notion was we have childhood, which lasts, you know, 18, 20 years, and then adulthood, which lasts maybe 40 or 50 years. And then after that, there didn't used to be very many people, and they didn't live very long. But now, actually, if we say old age begins somewhere between 60 and 70, which, although many people find it horrifying, is actually the definition across cultures and time, um, it means we live many generations in this old category. And I realize that in terms of policies, not just in healthcare, but in how we make sounds, you know transmit through restaurants or how we create government buildings. We were thinking of children and adults and never of elders. And I didn't make up the term elderhood, but it wasn't widely known. And it seemed to me necessary. You don't just want to make up a word for no good reason. But elderhood for most people will last longer than childhood. And if you think of how many times a day you hear things about children and childhood, we need to be paying similar attention to the biggest growing demographic and a period of life that lasts longer than childhood does and has as many substages. So as a geriatrician, we now um, we all now take care of often two generations, both of whom are old in one family. So how do we get there? How do we go from what our current sort of public narrative is around something like elderhood to uh, where you would like us to go in terms of looking at it, this um, longer phase of life where there's many subphases and can be full of new interests and activities? How do we get there, though? I think part of it, it's from everything from the symbolic to the practical. So the practical is happening in lots of ways. But if you don't name it and talk about it, then people don't recognize it for what it is. So um, in teaching medical students, what we discovered some years back was that you can give them lots of feedback. Say you're working with someone over a month. You can be giving them feedback every day. But unless each time you do that, you say, and now I'm giving you feedback, they will say, we, we didn't have any feedback sessions at the end of the month, right? So... Older people are already starting new careers and doing all kinds of interesting things and living full and happy lives and struggling with health issues that aren't being treated appropriately. But because we don't have a terminology, it ends up being invisible or unattended to in a variety of ways. So I think it begins with using the word elderhood or using the word elder. So whenever people invoke child and adult or, you know, children and adults or something, we want to say and elders, you know, let, let's think about 
the entire spectrum of a human life. And if we're talking at the population level and dividing the population by age, we need to include all age groups. So that means whenever you hear these things, you say, and elders and elderhood, we need to consider that. We also might need subterminology. And there actually, there's all kinds of people trying to come up with interesting words. Um, so how many people have heard the word adolescent? <laughs> right, pretty much everybody. So if I had asked that question 120 years ago, maybe 140 years ago, nobody would have heard of it. It did not exist as a category. And yet now there, there is so much of life built around adolescence, so many things we associate with it. And it has changed in a variety of ways. Partly it's longer and more indulged than it was previously, right? Um, and partly it has evolved in response to that. And that's what I believe will happen to elderhood. As more of us live into and in elderhood for more decades, it's going to evolve. And we need to think about, do we need different terminologies so we can discuss the different subphases? Now, there's a little bit of a risk to that because some people have already done this, at least in the social science literature. They talk about the third age and the fourth age. And the third age was um, a term that a man came up with because he was very accomplished and he was moving into his 70s himself. And he thought, but I'm still a vital, useful member of society. So there needs to be a word for people like me who are old and still matter. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that was the gist of it. And when we start there, we end up in trouble. Because he, like all the rest of us, I mean, maybe you die suddenly, uh, but most of us don't. And so if, if in evolving this terminology, we don't think both about capturing all the things people can do in all the phases of elderhood, and all the real needs and the retained humanity of people throughout the human lifespan, then we're in trouble. So it can't be that we have third age and fourth age, and fourth age is the second class citizen. Uh, that's actually not helpful. So I think we have to do this in a really smart uh, way. You know, there are other times when people are helpless. If somebody is very sick from chemotherapy and they're 32, people don't talk about what a drain on society they are. When somebody has a new baby, you know, you don't say, oh, I'm so sorry. Now you've got 20 years of huge expenses and trauma. And, you know, it just, we have to do it better. Absolutely. And so let's look at it from another angle in terms of um, almost like branding, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we've talked about this yes. um, and how we shift public perception and narratives. So if you were to imagine what your ideal marketing campaign would look like as we are, you know, rebranding this concept of elderhood, you know, what kind of imagery and, and photography and, you know, because that's, that's how we get there, right? In terms of shifting our, our conversations. Right. So with old age, it's a bit like okay, there's an event in San Francisco, let's show the Golden Gate Bridge. So yes, the Golden Gate Bridge is here. It's associated with San Francisco. But does that capture exactly who we are? Not necessarily. Often for marketing or branding, you'll see hands or an old hand or an old face. Um, and, and when you see an old hand with a young hand, the implication is that the point the, the old people are strictly in need and the young people are strictly giving, which we know to be inaccurate. Like, it, it's not just that I'm biased. It's that we know that's not true, right? In many, many sectors. Uh, are, as we advance through elderhood, do we all need more help of, and eventually a lot of help? Yes, that's true. But that's true in many other phases of life. And, and that's a single story. There's actually a great... Um, TED Talk by Chimimanda Adichie, uh, the Nigerian-American writer about, um, I see someone nodding, uh, the dangers of the single story. When we tell a single story about any category of human being, we strip them of most of their humanity and most of what makes them interesting. Uh, so we just can't be telling one story. So I think we need to be careful. And at the same time, when you look at branding, it tends to go one of two ways. It's either old people are needy and we're here to help, you know, so younger people as saviors, uh, or it's that 
old age is just awesome, right? You eat your blueberries and kale and you are healthy and great and you're jumping in the air and you're actually more beautiful than you have ever been. I don't know if you see these things, but if I got to be that good looking in the next 10 or 20 years, that would be awesome. (laughs) But I'm not going to hold my breath. So... Uh, So I think we we need to figure out how to be honest and positive at the same time. And I'm not in marketing for probably some very good reasons, but I think staying away from the stereotypes and the things that reinforce what we know to be people's dearest prejudices is a good way to start. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe showing real human beings. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what about some some challenges you've faced as you've... um uh, you know, taken to the road to, to, to do this kind of rebranding and introduce the concept of elderhood to a wider audience? Are there people who are pushing back and, and want to just keep, um, you know, so-called old age as this very separate sort of phase of life? Like we've talked about, you know, you talked about um, how older individuals are getting warehouse separately from the rest of society. Um, so are there some people who actually are trying to keep it that way? Are you facing pushback? Not, I mean, I was just about to say, like, who would be in favor of warehousing human beings? Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me start probably again. probably some answers, yes. but yes. <laughs> I'm going to start somewhere else. Um, so... I haven't had pushback in that regard. I have had pushback uh, on radio programs mostly where people will, I'll, I'll give, what, I'll basically say something akin to what I've said so far. And then people will say, well, you know, I'm 75 and I'm still working, so I'm not old yet. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. be like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's so entrenched. And I don't want to say it's easy uh, when when something is so vilified. Uh it's hard to say I'm a member of that category. But if you look at every civil rights movement, it's when people began to own their category Mm -hmm. that the movement began to succeed better. Not pretending to be something you're not, but having agency in what you are. Uh, So I think uh, uh, we talk about 70 as the new 50, but then that suggests 70 is never good. And so that is not helpful. Instead of saying, yes, I'm 75, this is what 75 looks like. And that's what 75 looks like. And that's what 75 looks like. And this is what 90 looks like. And that also is what 90 looks like. Uh, Just letting it be what it is. And so I, I would Love it if people could get comfortable saying, I'm old. It's pretty terrific. Here's what I'm doing. You know, just like Mm -hmm. in passing, right? Don't dwell on it. Don't apologize for it. Apologizing for who you are sets up the very thing you're trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. Um, But I admit it's hard. So I started as I hit my 50s. making comments to our students who are generally in their 20s about things I can no longer do. And as I was writing this book, I realized I was, in fact, part of the problem that I, you know, as a well-socialized American, I was doing what we all do already. Uh, And now I do much less of that. Or if I say that, I say and, and then I add all the positive things and all the reasons why I'm so glad to be me now and not them. (laughs) Uh, and and they, sometimes they look up surprised, uh, and I think that's good. That's how we begin changing the conversation. We just tell the truth, absolutely, not just part of the story, but the whole. Uh, you can't tell the whole story, although I tend to go on. But well, taking ownership and, and, and agency, like you were talking about, and, and really claiming your own narrative. And on that point, I want to go back to what you were just saying um, when we think about. Um, people taking ownership and claiming the narrative, um, you know, in the context of something like civil rights, which, which you just mentioned, um, or advocating for the rights of, of people in elderhood. Um, let's talk about that for a moment, um, in terms of within medicine about like the middle-aged white guy being the so-called norm against which every other group of people is compared, including women and, and people of color. Um, yeah, so, large categories that amount yes. to the majority of humans on the planet. Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> so so let's talk about that for a moment and how how that is starting to change within medicine. And I mean, you've, you've been at UCSF for a long time and um, 
Uh, I know definitely awareness is growing within research studies themselves and making sure that um, study cohorts are more diverse. And so can you, can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, so traditionally, for those who haven't yet read the book, what we learned about in medicine was the 70-kilogram man. Uh, and he was considered really the norm, so I call him Norm in the book. Um, <laughs> but he was considered the standard. And you you didn't really know how old he was, but he was probably maybe in his 30s or 40s. Sometimes he'd be in his 50s. Um, and he was clearly white and heterosexual and all these things. And and you real like it took me years. I didn't really realize at the time, but it took me years to realize that he probably was the creation of the men who were doing most of the science and writing the curricula because that's what was happening at that era in history. And as things have changed, um, we're hearing more. In, in, initially, in the eighties, it started with women. There were more women in medicine, and so people started saying, "Well, maybe we should think about women's health." Although, consider what we have, right? We have health, and then we have women's health. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say we've completely solved that, um, <laughs> although we're making progress. So today I was reading a study and an editorial about atrial fibrillation, which is largely a disease of older people. And uh, older people tend to be more female than male for reasons we can discuss. And the study include one-third women, which is actually not bad, but not representative of the population. The average age in the study, though, was 78. And previously, although the majority of people with atrial fibrillation are over 70, people under age, people over 70 were often excluded from studies, either on the basis of age or on the basis of comorbidities, uh, meaning other diseases they already have. Women do, even though they live longer than men, they tend to have more diseases. So that may have been why they were excluded from that study. So we're starting to make progress. And yet, if you think that the mandates for inclusion of women started in the 80s and 90s, and in this study in a population that's mostly women, we have one-third women, then I would say we haven't quite arrived. And when it comes to people of color, then it's even lower. Um, and, and similarly with children, and similarly with old people. So on each front, we're making progress, and yet... Um, it's tough. And, and they don't add into budgets thinking of recruitment, you mm-hmm. know, or ethics, implications for different populations or different people of different ages. It seems to me you shouldn't be allowed to do science without having to budget those things in. Um, but that's not happening. On the other hand, we're definitely making progress. And yet still the diversity curriculum is an add-on um, or considered a selective as opposed to just the core of we need to understand all human beings. And so can you talk about the diversity within elderhood itself? Because as you've said, it's it can be such a, a long stretch of time. And I think you had told me that after um, the age of, of 75, for example, there's sort of a different set of needs that we need to look at before that age and after that age. And so is that starting to happen within scientific studies and the practice of medicine, like really being able to cater to the distinct individual needs of different subphases of elderhood? Yes. So sometimes they talk about the old and the oldest old or, you know, the the young old under 75, the old 75 to 85, and the oldest old above 85. Um, so there's some issues with that. It's it's somewhat random. And in old age, actually, in contrast to other areas where we think about things like this, like childhood, you know, a two-year-old is pretty much a two-year-old across the board unless there's something, you know, they're terribly wrong genetically or in some other way, they're, unless they're ill. Um, but an 82-year-old isn't really an 82-year-old. So it's really hard to parse old age based on numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can you assume that a 90-year-old on average will walk more slowly than a 65-year-old? You can. So there are some ways you can, you can divide people by age. Uh, but it doesn't work as well as at younger ages. And that's another reason people steer clear of it, because it's complicated. We talk about maybe it's about functional status, because there is really good evidence that things like walking speed or grip strength are better predictors of risk of hospitalization, of chances of death in a person than is age alone. So maybe we need a different set of metrics. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, age is easy. Everybody 
knows their age. They don't always know their grip strength. What does that even mean? What is she talking about? You know, um, so probably we'll have to do it in that way, but we'll have to understand that the borders are really blurry and porous Mm -hmm. because the other thing that's unique to older ages is that you can move to a higher level so you can appear more old and then get younger again. So you can see where the terminology fails. And by that, I mean, you are more frail um, or moving more slowly if you've had a serious illness, but with some good physical therapy and a willingness to really stick with it over months and sometimes a year or more, you can, many people can reachieve a much higher functional status. So people will say they look great or they look younger again. And that doesn't happen as much, or at least we don't use the terms older and younger when it happens to younger people. If it was a 35-year-old, you'd say, wow, you know, she's still looking really sick. Um, And then you'd say, now she looks better again. You wouldn't say necessarily, well, she's looking 75 and now she looks 40. Mm -hmm. Um, So so it gets complicated, but, but I do think we're moving in that direction more. Okay, got it. And so for people in the audience or, you know, folks listening at home um, who are perhaps, you know, embarking on, you know, elderhood soon, um, what, what is one of the core messages of the book that, that, you, that you wanted to convey? You know, I'm sure that there are mixed emotions. I mean, you talk a lot about how it's, um, how actually happiness on average increases, um, during those years. Um, but I'm sure there are some people who, you know, are not aware of that or anticipating, um, perhaps a different experience. Um, so what is it that you really want people to know? Hmm. I guess I'd want them to know that it's a varied time of life and that you have both that you have more control over it than most people imagine. Um, and that you should assert that control, um, not apologize, not let people off the hook when they actually was telling you, uh, as I uh, came on BART just now, I got a message from someone I don't know, who was thanking me for the book and told me a story about her 82 year old neighbor, who had been in pain for about a year and a half from arthritis and had been to a variety of doctors, all of whom had told her, um, well, you're old, what do you expect? Uh, which happens all the time, as I'm sure people know. Uh, And so this neighbor read the book and said, no, you just have to keep going until you find someone. So apparently this woman last week went to a different doctor who gave her some pain medicines, or I don't know what they did. They did something, and she's not in pain for the first time in a year and a half. So she didn't just accept that, you know, say, I'm old. Old is not a diagnosis, right? Old puts me at risk for a variety of diagnoses. I'd like to know what's wrong with me, and I'd like to know what you're going to do about it. Um, You know, and don't apologize. Don't apologize. Apologize if you're slower walking into something. You have a right to be there. You know, just I think we need to own this. We don't apologize for other phases of life. Um, you know, sometimes people apologize for their teenagers, but the teenagers themselves are not apologizing. <laughs> um, so, and I and I think talk about it. And there's also a way of holding people accountable when they say, "I don't want to hear about that." Uh, so uh, a friend of mine or sort of an acquaintance last week was saying, you know, I want to talk about these things with my kids. Um, so they're in their, I think early eighties and my kids say they don't want to hear about it. It's morbid. Um, and I think there's a way we have to say like, when you're in your eighties, you know, chances are really good. You'll be dead in 20, dead in 25 years, right? Really, really, really good. And chances are not bad that you will be dead sooner than that. So it's not necessarily morbid. It's a fact of life. We all die. Uh, for all the advances in science, we're all still dying. Um, and, and it's more morbid to avoid it and not talk about it. Uh, we also know that the more planned death, the more discussed death, the more death becomes part of a family, the less traumatic it is for everyone, the person who is dying and the people who are left behind. So normalizing it and discussing it and laughing about it, like people who actually do this end up really growing closer and, and you know, and then, you know, some, some of it is morbid. And so then they laugh at the morbidity and, and it just sort of lessens the pressure, um, so, and, and people are often derided, like you've probably all heard the joke of, oh, well, old people are always complaining about their health. 
Uh, well, I would argue that adults are always talking about their work and children are always talking about school. Now, do I necessarily think health should be the topic of old age? Like, that's not ideal. But we also know that health issues are forefronted more as we grow older. And it's okay to talk about what is paramount in your life. And the fact that we, re we respond without sympathy to that is what's not acceptable. Um, if that's what's going on in a person's life, if a person is in pain, I always think this, I rarely get migraines, but when I get one, I think, how do people live with this degree of pain every single day and function? Because a lot of people do. Mm. Um, and it's okay to talk about that. So we just have to work on normalizing these things. And if people say, I don't want to hear about that, or, oh, you're always, say, well, you know, you're always talking about your job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like you've just spent the last hour talking about your job. This is what I'm thinking about. So mm -hmm. um, if we're truly in a good relationship here, then I want to hear what's up with you. And I hope you want to hear what's up with me. And can you share some stories, perhaps, of some of the the patients you've worked with and, and the families that you've gotten to know along the way where um, where that was the case, where there was just a... A supportive relationship, supportive dynamic, um, you know, topics like death, for example, were just discussed openly and in a healthy way. And, um, you know, just where everything you're describing w actually played out in practice. Yes. So it's becoming more common. It really almost never happened up till 10 years ago. I'd say it would be exceptional. Um, but now it happens more. Uh, and often there will be a lead person or people will have done things like use these go wish cards that you can get on Amazon, which I think everybody takes 15 or something and you put five in each category of these things I don't care about. These things are the most important things to me. And then in between, these are the five things like if I get extras, I totally want these. Um, and it's a nice way of getting to know each other. And I've had couples... Um, I'm taking care of, now that I'm actually not doing house calls anymore, I'm taking care of more and more couples. And they find that they learn things, even if they've been married 60 or 70 years, they're learning things about each other. Um, and that's pretty fun. And then they come in and they giggle and it's, we have a really nice time. Um, yeah, it's fun. Uh, and I think often a an adult child will bring these things up and, and sometimes uh, it's to make themselves feel better and more in control of things. And I think that's good as long as the control stays where it belongs, which is in the life of the person whose life is being discussed. Mm -hmm. um, but people will say, we really didn't want to do it. And sometimes I'll have appointments with people with those, did you, you know, did you do the advanced planning? You know, because... Things go better if you've planned for them and we know what you want. No, not yet. No, not yet. And then um, actually a few months ago, I had someone come back who hadn't done it. So this is actually a person with long-term HIV and he hadn't done it when he nearly died in the 90s and he hadn't done it since. Uh, and he finally did it and he said, you know, I've actually had a couple, a couple guys like that, but this one said, this feels so good and it really made him closer to his nieces and nephews and he realized that he'd been avoiding it. And somehow in elderhood, it felt easier for him to think about that and somehow better and more whole. And he just had this big grin on his face. He said, wow, I've been not doing this for like 30 years. <laughs> this was pretty terrific. Hmm. Wow. Those are great stories. So what about, so aside from, from, from death, um, but you know, the, the many other aspects and phases of elderhood, what are some stories that you encountered along the way where people have, um, you know, discovered new interests or aspects of themselves during, during that phase of life? Um, what stands out to you? Well, that happens all the time. I should say that I've had less of that experience because geriatrics until just the last few years has mostly focused on the oldest old. Uh, this was in part because it was there was a certain logic to it. The argument went, there aren't enough of us, so we're going to focus on the people who need us most, the oldest and the frailest. Um, and the problem with that was it became associated with the oldest and the frailest. And in an ageist society, that made geriatrics remain unpopular 
which meant there weren't too many people in it, which meant they only dealt with the oldest and frailest and on and on and on, right? Um, it also takes the classic medical approach of coming in once people are frail and once they have a variety of diseases. Um, this is what medicine does in general. We have really you know, well-equipped hospitals and ICUs. And in fact, if we see you in the hospital, it's much more lucrative for us than if we see you in the clinic. That's why the hospitals and, you know, fancy buildings look much nicer than the, the clinic where we keep you healthy in primary care. Um, so, so we were sort of doing all of what we had been groomed to do, basically. And now there is a movement of people probably in response to this new phase of elderhood and all the people saying this is unacceptable, which is great. So social action already working, uh, saying, well, why don't we think about elderhood throughout its stages and all the people who are old and try and do more? Because we actually have some good data going back decades on how to keep people from becoming frail longer um, and keep them from getting certain diseases, but we, we haven't done that so well. Mm. So traditionally, I haven't had as many people like that. But in my new clinic, which is really seeing people from 60 through my oldest patient now is 104, I think. Um, my oldest ever was 111. So wow. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I actually in that situation, that's where you really see the generations. Because at some point, I realized like, I better see what happens if her daughter who went into became in her 80s would dies first. Like mm -hmm. one day, apropos, I don't know what it suddenly occurred to me that I needed to do take care of that too, just in case. Wow. Um, it did not happen that way. So that was probably right. But right. Uh, <laughs> so n now I'm seeing more people and there is this transitional phase. And I've seen this as much in my friends who are in their 60s where people have this, who am I? What am I going to do? The people who are happiest have a clear sense of what they want to do next. They don't necessarily do it right away. Um, a fair number of people take a year to transition. There was one year a few years ago where I had various friends whose retired husbands were, one of them was reading math books and one of them was going to a lot of movies and cooking a lot. And one, you know, and then after about a year, a year and a half, they each recovered from their jobs of adulthood and now are on to what some people call encore careers. But careers again, but not as many hours a week, not as stressful uh, and pleasant. Uh, other people take up art or they volunteer. It turns out people in their 70s and now increasingly even people in their 80s are a, the fastest growing segment of the workforce. But that's actually only counting a certain portion of the workforce. So here again is where we see Norm rear his, his uh, ugly face because um, we only count certain sorts of work. We only count paid work. Um, there is a whole lot of caregiving going on and a whole lot of volunteering going on, all of which is work. There's a lot of art going on, which is also work, often unpaid. Um, all those things really count. So there are many ways in which people are productive. And often people do a combination thereof. And then some people really jump into self-care. Um, getting themselves in shape mm -hmm. and, and then move on from there. I will say to, to the uh, men in the audience who haven't yet reached 62 that there was a study last year that men who retired at 62 as opposed to the men who kept working were more likely to die. Now that could be confounded a little bit, but purpose we know at all ages really matters. And it can be a purpose large and small, but it's a reason to get up, to enjoy the mm -hmm. day, to live your life. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Let's talk about work uh, for a minute, actually, because, um, you know, here in the Bay Area, <laughs> we have, you know, the, the dominance of Silicon Valley um, and, you know, a, a largely younger millennial population. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, ageism in the workplace and, you know, people as people are living longer and wanting to stay productive and engaged, um, throughout elderhood, um, you know, there are barriers and, and roadblocks. And so I wonder your, your thoughts on that. 
Right. So we have a lot of millennials, but we also have a lot, we have a higher proportion of older adults than most communities as well. So that's another way in which elderhood is kind of invisible. Uh, It becomes invisible as people deny their elderhood or cover it up Mm -hmm. in a variety of ways instead of saying, you know, I'm actually here and still working. But there are those pull down menus, uh, which don't include people's birthdays, so that you literally can't apply because your birthday does not appear on the list. Um, So when that happens, you should report it. um, Because it's ageism in the workplace, age discrimination. So that's not allowed. And, you know, unless it's that rare job that really does require some physical something where, you know, at age 35 or 40, you can no longer do it. Um, (laughs) So I think we need to recognize all the different jobs. And I also think it will change as the, the initial founders get older themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a bit like we didn't know there could be old rock and roll stars until there were <laughs> old rock and roll stars, right? Um, because rock and roll didn't exist. Uh, you know, even Mark Zuckerberg, who remains young since he started as a child, basically, to be a billionaire or whatever he is, um, he's reaching the age where he said people were essentially useless. So it'll be interesting to see if he finds himself useless in his 30s. Um, I hope not. I find it hard to believe he will become useless. And then there are other people who are in middle age and looking at elderhood. And it's particularly effective when they have to... uh, confront it themselves. So sort of the, the next on, on the block, uh, phenomenon and sometimes taking care of older parents. But we do find, um, that often donors will give to children's causes or causes that are sort of sexy. Like I go around the country and at every medical center, you will find a heart center and a cancer center and a neurosciences center and often a nice children's hospital. Um, and what you won't find is what would help more people the most, what, what we have in all the most effective health systems on the planet, which is a huge center for primary care where we actually keep people healthy in the first place. That's what we need more than anything. Um, we do actually need more care for children. We need much better mental health. But the areas where we know lead to better health outcomes, and the U.S. Um, is ranked 37th um, internationally in our health outcomes. So for all our um, braggadocio about all our inventions and stuff, our outcomes are not very good on a population level. But you don't see these primary care centers, um, you know, outpatient children's centers, mental health centers, geriatric centers. Um, So it would be nice if people would start thinking that way. But what we find is the donors often will, you know, call someone on in our group to see their aging parents, but the money goes somewhere else. So I'd like to see somebody stand up Mm -hmm. and say, I'm actually putting my money into aging and helping people age as well as they can. I don't like the term successful aging, because if you use that term, we all fail. Like that is, (laughs) that is like a hundred percent failure rate. You can have a few good years, maybe a few good decades, and then, then we all fail. Um, So what we like to talk about is optimizing aging. And when we optimize aging, we can do that, you know, if you're 62 or if you're 102. Mm -hmm. That's great. We're going to go to questions in just a moment, but I want to ask you um, a closing question about you and, and your own life and as sort of you're looking ahead and forward and to, to your own elderhood years. Um, what do, do you have a sense of, uh, of what is in store, what you're looking forward to, or do you have like an inkling? Is there sort of like um, perhaps another book or <laughs> a creative pursuit? Yes. Or- yeah. Uh, so there will be another book. Um, I'd like to, you know, I like what I'm doing and I foresee myself doing it for many more years, barring something bad happening. Um, I have this nice position of I see patients sometimes, I teach, which I also really love. Um, I do a lot of work in our health humanities. Um, although that's mostly unofficial. Um, that's one of those things you really can't get paid to do so far. Um, but, uh, 
but we're doing some great things there. So for instance, one of our students will have a piece in the New England Journal, which talks about if anybody's read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, it's a great book. And she talks about how that really came into play with her mother's cancer care. And it's an incredible piece. Um, so we, we have more and more of our students really getting new voices out there as part of this program. So um, so that one I, I don't make a living based on, but but I love it, and we'd like to become the center um, in the United States that really helps train people from patients to healthcare providers to tell the stories that should really be guiding our policies and our care and our research. Um, so that's a big passion of mine, and I hope that just gets um, bigger and, and more support with time. Writing more books, um, you know, enjoying life. I... Uh, my vision travel. isn't perfect. My, I have arthritis. You know, there are things that, uh, that I need to do. So keep myself healthy. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Let's give Louise a round of applause. Thank you. So we will take some audience questions. We have a couple of mics going around the room. Um, we'll start here. Thank you for your work and for the book and for being here. Um, much appreciated. I, I think just interested in more things that people can do to help beyond vocabulary and normalization. I would assume there's ways that people can contribute time and, and energy and sort of back you up in this work. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Great question. Thank you. Um, so there are so many ways to get involved and to also evolve our sense of um, – I'm volunteering, I'm helping. Maybe I need help here, but I need to volunteer there. So I guess in elderhood, one of the things we find for volunteerism is that people either them see themselves as the volunteer or they see themselves as the recipient. And the real truth of elderhood is that you might need help with this and you might be able to help with that. So I think a really important way is seeing where we can give and where we might benefit, which also normalizes the sense that we all need other people's help. Um, basically actually throughout life, but you know, it gets called out more as we get older. Um, there are all sorts of programs around town that could use support. Um, in the, um, in our division, we're working with a huge community. We actually have an optimizing aging collaborative and could use people's, um, support for those programs. Um, there's, you know, HIV aging. We have a program with SF Village. We have a variety of things that we do um, with the the senior centers around town. Uh, so lots of opportunities. And then I think also, um, we didn't really talk about exercise, but you can exercise and get more fit and feel better at all ages. Even people um, who are using walkers or wheelchairs, there are ways to feel better. And I think, I mean, even just at, at, the gyms I have attended, it's already harder to be a person in her 50s with what they want to do that isn't so healthy. And I'm beginning to question whether it's healthy for the young people. Like maybe they can do it. I'm wondering whether they should. I'm knowing that I shouldn't have when I was their age, <laughs> certain things. So um, so I think like showing up and saying, what do you have for people like me uh, in hospitals, at clinics? I keep hearing as I do this from people who can't find a geriatrician in any of the health systems in town, you know, call up and say, how is that you have doctors for adults and you have doctors for kids and you don't have one for me. How is that? It's not okay. Thank you. Great question. Let's go to, yes. I would like some advice and wisdom about how to approach and deal with physicians who are ageist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. Um, I think if you if you call someone a name, they're rarely receptive to what you say after that. So I guess I might avoid the label ageist, even though you'll know, and hopefully afterwards they might have a moment of recognition. I guess I would say all clinicians, and I keep using the word doctor, but, you know, of the clinicians we see like this, so that includes PAs and NPs um, and any other sort of clinician, you know, physical therapists, et cetera. So this happens like we know social workers don't get training in this. We know physical therapists don't get, you know, it's across the boards, all, all clinicians. Um, I would say... Uh, 
you know, you can, you can reference this. You can say I was at this lecture with this geriatrician who said, you know, like aging is not a diagnosis. I understand it puts me at risk, but I'm really wondering what's going on here. And if you can help me and if you can't help me, maybe somebody else can. Um, or say, I'm sure you didn't, you know, I really am liking you as a physician, but I'm feeling you know, the I thing, right? I'm feeling a little frustrated um, because I'm really, I'm having these problems and they're really affecting my life. And my understanding from my reading is that this is not, un- not not treatable, that there are things that can be done. And I'd really like your help in doing this. I understand if you need some time and need to get back to me. Um, you just give them some options, um, but also let them know it's not okay. Like, you know that that's not a diagnosis. Um, yeah. Excellent question. Um, do we have Mike over here? Hi. Um, so I was a little startled when my physician suggested that at 86 I could make my cardiovascular system better. Uh, <laughs> do you want to talk? Do you want to address that or suggest ha- how people might um, get to that point? Maybe earlier that. <laughs> Without having to wait all those and say, wait a minute, you mean I really can make it better? How do, how do you think um, people, how do you think that notion that we can always be getting better can be understood and communicated to one's physician? Oh, that's interesting. Well, so we know we can feel better and function better at all ages. Um, we don't know as much about you know the benefits of all treatments. Um, so there are treatments like statins, which some people would basically put in the water supply alongside the fluoride. Um, and they have some real benefits, but we also know they have some real harms in increasing risk for diabetes, um, in muscle pains, um, in a variety of other things. So there are risks and benefits. Uh, there, if you look at the studies of the statins and you look at the studies of something like the Mediterranean diet. Um, For the statins to save one life over five years, a lot of people take it. Some people get diabetes, some people have muscle pains, etc. If the same number of people do the Mediterranean diet for one year, right, so much less time, um, you save the same or more lives. And you're also keeping people more functional, because there's usually weight loss associated, um, you're lowering their risk of diabetes, not increasing it. You're probably lowering their blood pressure. You're lowering their risk for certain cancers. There are all these things that we can do that make a bigger difference. But actually, in a 15-minute appointment, it's way easier for the clinician to write you a prescription. Um, and health systems are happy to stock statins, but they don't necessarily have... Some of them are starting to get these... Um, uh, culinary clinics, basically, where they're sort of teaching people how to cook and giving them support. But if we really wanted a healthy populace, we'd put so much more of this money into helping people eat right and exercise and believe that they can make a difference. Um, And particularly in those communities where you don't have access to healthy food. Uh, And then really working more instead of on inventing another drug on how do you get yourself to do the right thing, right? Because We know this, right? People who smoke know they shouldn't smoke. You know, people who gain weight know they should be thinner. It's not so easy. Most of us want to do the right thing. Um, And I know for me, as I've reached the age where my metabolism isn't quite what it is, you know, I do the right thing for a week or two, and then I don't. And then I start again. (laughs) You know, so there must be some way we can get into our own heads that's more effective. Uh, And to tell people to, you know, the sooner you start, the better it is. And, And how do you do it? mostly right, but still live. Um, Because I've always been in the category of, you know, life without dessert, I'm just not sure I need it. You know, um, I love dessert. Um, So, and and then to realize that what you can do in your 70s, 80s, and 90s may be different from what you can and should do in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything. And also that it's quite individual. 
Um, for some people, walking up steps is essential because if they want to stay in their home, they need to walk up steps. For other people, they have an elevator and they'd much rather be able to, you know, do something different, you know, use their hands in certain ways or, you know, find transportation to get somewhere. Um, there are so many different ways. And we also, in the current health system, don't make enough time for people to get to know who the patient is and personalize the treatment. There was an article today in Kaiser Health News about a primary care clinic in Indiana, I think, um, that has the best outcomes hands down in that state, like no contest. And when they were asked what, what they did differently, they said, well, we, we start with the patient's story. We get to know our patients. It was all about local and getting to know the person. Because what you can do for your heart health at 86 is different from 76 and 96. And it also depends on who you are and what you want to be doing with your life. But at most ages, there's something you can do. We actually don't know really what to do for a 96-year-old's heart health because we haven't really studied 96-year-olds, except for valve disease. So, all right, we'll take a question here. Sorry. Mine isn't so much a question, but a compliment. And we moved here five years ago and we joined a geriatric practice. And it starts at a much later age than your practice. (laughs) And I have to tell you, we have had the most caring, considerate, concerned physicians that we have ever met. And because we are in your category of old, we've met quite a few. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Thank you for that. Let's go here. I know people age very differently, but I was wondering if you could talk if there's such a thing as some generalities of what happens to people in the psychology of aging, because I'm taking care of a 95-year-old, and I'm having trouble understanding their thought process. So what happens to people in terms of their psychology of aging as well as their physiology when the organs are the pump, heart's not pumping well, it used to be, the muscles aren't working? Could you talk if there's such things that as you get older, all those things are happening to you? Oh, that's so interesting. Well, there's there's a huge literature on the psychology of aging, which will be hard to to sort of reduce in a few sentences. Um, and I think the influence of culture and generational differences on the psychology of aging are hard to underestimate. Um, so some of the literature really depends on when they studied the oldest populations. We already, so now I've been a geriatrician for 25 years, I think, 20-some years, Um and I can already see a difference between the initial people I treated, the, mo- the people I treat who are in their 80s and 90s now, and then the baby boomers in terms of how much agency they have and how fatalistic they are. Um, there is sometimes, there are certain tendencies, there is a reduction in life space. So life space is kind of all the spaces you interact with. Um, maybe you're a globetrotter, so then the planet is your life space, you know, if you frequently travel. Um, people tend to then travel less. Maybe they stop going internationally. Then they stop going nationally. Then maybe they stay, if they're in San Francisco, they stay in San Francisco. And then maybe they go fewer places in San Francisco. And then maybe they stay in their home. And so the life space gets smaller. Um, and some of that is seems to be a matter of um, control and familiarity. There are things that happen as we age where maybe you can't see as well or you can't hear as well. Hearing is enormous and hearing aids help, um, but they don't fix in the way glasses often fix a problem of vision. Um, There is a sense of vulnerability that also leads people to restrict and there's a sense of not welcomeness. So, So I think there are ways we as a society contribute to this by not building places that allow for lower vision or lower hearing or people walking more slowly so that you feel like you need to stay in an environment over which you can have more control. Uh, so, I mean, I can go on and on, but it, it's a little bit about self-preservation and sometimes some people become more fatalistic. Um, it seems to vary a fair amount. Um, 
there are people who become really comfortable with, I love being alive. And if I died, it would be okay. I've had a nice life. And other people become very, very anxious about dying because they know the older you get, the closer you are. Um, and they just focus on that all the time. Uh, and, and there's a degree of anxiety that is, is hard to, and, and anybody at any age who's really anxious has trouble remembering things. So then it seems like they have memory problems or maybe, you know, when you have memory problems that can make you anxious. And so people end up in these vicious uh, cycles that are hard to break. Uh, but thinking about a familiar welcoming environment, calming things in terms of light and, you know, music works for some people, for other people, it means now they can't hear anything at all when you're talking. Um, so really, you know, again, individualizing and should probably stop there. Yeah. <laughs> A lot to explore. Oh, physiology, everything changes. So most organs have, um, they get, a lot get smaller, a few get bigger. So I have actually a section on this in the, in the book, but, um, you know, some organs get smaller, some get bigger. Most of them don't function at the level they used to function. So luckily they're made with redundancy, but what that means is they might be functioning, but something really little could take them to not functioning. Um, so I was going to just graph this out here, but that won't help the people on the radio. So if you imagine a line between function and not function, um, when you're young, if you're very healthy, you're way, way, way above the line. And as we age, you go down a bit. So you can still be above the line, but maybe you get a really bad cold and then suddenly you're really having trouble breathing or you go into heart failure where a younger person would just say, wow, I get short of breath going up the steps with this cold. This is a bad cold. Um, so things like that happen, but all the organs change. Mm. Okay, let's go here. I know you've been waiting to ask Louise a question. I wonder if you can address any positive changes in the psychology or even the cognitive functioning as we age. Thank you for that. I should have done that. I was uh, geared in the other way. So um, in the introduction, it was, or maybe I think it was you who quoted the, the happiness factor. So there are these studies um, across countries that find that happiness uh, is greatest generally in the early 20s-ish, you know, so fairly high through childhood, early 20s, and then really goes down. Happiness and life satisfaction go down through the later 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s and begin to come up again as people near 60. So that's happiness and life satisfaction going up as people near 60 and anxiety for most people going down. Um, so that's pretty pleasant. And it turns out that people are more comfortable with who they are, with what they enjoy and like doing. So this is one of the positive flip sides, one of the, the narratives we don't hear. We hear about all the losses of aging, all the things you can no longer do. But in some ways, that seems to be psychologically helpful. Um, I'm actually thinking it's going to work well for me because I can never make decisions. <laughs> um, so if you have fewer things to decide among, then it might be easier to pick the one that you like best. And then you've, if when you make a choice and it suits you, you feel good about it. So it becomes positively reinforcing. Uh, there is a debate about whether wisdom or emotional intelligence go up. Some people find yes, some people find no. It kind of depends on how you, you know, like all statistics, what you put in determines a bit what you get out. Um, but there does seem to be a a sense of knowledge or a learned knowledge that, that some people combat, well, you can get from Google, but Google is just facts. Like it can't really take into account the situational complexity. And that's something that people who are older can do based on having seen similar things many, many times. And if you think of that as wisdom or emotional intelligence, that seems to go up in most people barring um, various diseases that can compromise it. So thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. Great question. Let's go here. Related to happiness, um, lately I've been saying to myself, well, you know, I would really be happier if I didn't think about certain topics. And But then I immediately start feeling guilty. Oh, I really should stay concerned about all the world's problems, but I don't want to, you know? <laughs> so it's like... I want to give myself permission and I want you to give me permission <laughs> to not worry about all the world's problems. 
Oh, I don't think that problem has anything to do with age. Um, I think that problem has to do with the age in which we live. Um, and it is overwhelming. And, and they do think that part of the high rates of anxiety, unprecedented rates of anxiety, I mean, some of it has to do with social media and, you know, constant connectedness and the bombarding of it, the, the, the how as well as the what. Um, so, you know, how do we deal with that in a healthy way? People are saying more and more that to um, have a general sense or check in periodically and to allay the guilt to pick one key issue that's really important and do something about it and do something about it consistently because we're not, none of us is going to solve all these problems Maybe, you know, I mean, none of us, no one person could, but if you're doing something about one of them, if each of us were doing something about one of them, then already things would be getting better and then you wouldn't have to feel guilty and you could kind of tune out and maybe once a week you could read one of those digests that gives you the highlights (laughs) of the horrors of the week. (laughs) Great question. Great answer. I think we'll have time for one or two more. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, it's really, really fascinated by the the notion that terminology can have a way of changing our whole society. Um, I just, I'm curious if you feel comfortable. Um, any of the terminology that you've been noodling around about young, old, middle, old, 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 what what kind of uh, words have you come up with for that? Well, I haven't come up with any of the good ones. And now that you've put me on the spot, I'm going to forget all the good ones, actually. <laughs> I'm actually having that sort of day, generally, all day at work. Um, <laughs> it's been great. Uh, well, elderhood itself. I elderhood mean, you, itself for the whole thing. Right. I mean, you, Thank you. like you said, you, you didn't invent the term. No. But, I mean, just employing it. Right. M- more frequently and, and in mm. public, I mean, that itself is, is an act of, of reframing and, you know. Right. You know, it, definitely. And, and I think we can use terms. Uh, so I discussed this at the beginning of the book. People don't like the word old, but they prefer the term elder. If you actually look them up in terms of people, they mean the exact same thing. So old is bad if we keep using it to be, mean something bad. Um, if people say something about somebody being old and then they apologize for it, that means that old is bad, you know? So just saying like, well, why are you apologizing? Of course I'm old, you know, or of course, you know, I, I keep saying this, but you know, to, if to people in their twenties, once you have the gray hair that I've grown out this past year, it's pretty much all par for the course. So, so I think owning that sense of, yes, I'm old. And, you know, like it just really pushing back against that word. And then there are, you can find online, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting, but a a variety of other terms that people have proposed. Um, Some of them propose reforming the word senescence, which really was the origin of the word adolescence, um, and yet has come to be um, mixed up with uh, dementia, which is a, a, a large umbrella diagnosis that includes about, you know, depending on who you speak to, 70 or 80 other diagnoses of cognitive loss, where if senescence really just means getting older, uh, so maybe it's not such a bad thing, or it's certainly what's happening, so why not make it something we can talk about? But there are really fun terms, and I'm just forgetting every single one of them right mm-hmm. now. I'm so okay. sorry. Yeah, we can look it up. No <laughs> well, I think we've come to the point of our program where we can take one more question. Okay, let's... Um, there's one, one bunch over there. <laughs> there's, people are saying this this man has had a hand up forever. Okay. <laughs> thank you all. <laughs> uh, you Got a whole team. Thank you for the talk and providing your insight. I wanted to know your thoughts on mental health and identifying that and managing that while navigating like an identity in elderhood. Oh, that's such a good question. Well, in general, we don't do a good job in mental health. Um, So if you want to talk about areas of health that are underfunded and understaffed, um, mental health is huge. And it might be that there's actually a relationship there. Uh, It seems to me that the the fields that deal more with human identity uh, 
tend to be less funded and less talked about. Um, mental illness can threaten your identity um, with certain disorders or it can just disrupt your life. Um, and elderhood changes your identity. So having both simultaneously is a double sociocultural burden, right? And you're asking for help for two er from two areas of the health system that are grossly underfunded. Um, I mean, imagine that a person who, if you fall down and break your arm, a per the, the doctor in charge of um, setting that arm, you know, whether just putting it in a cast or do doing surgery, um, will be paid on average, you know, five to seven times more than the doctor who might help you if you were to develop bipolar illness or schizophrenia. That is insane as a social priority. Um, and probably the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. Like I'm not complaining that doctors are underpaid compared to most people in society. I think on the contrary, there are some that are very well compensated. Um, so, uh, so how do we deal with both those things? Um, I think it's, it's like an intersectionality discussion, uh, where multiple identities, um, feed on each other there. They can be symbiotic or synergistic in good or bad ways. Um, and to address either one in isolation doesn't make sense because what mental illness means when you're 75 is different than what it means when you're 25. And a key thing is to really give people, if, if somebody is treating somebody at 75 with mental illness, then they need the knowledge, um, of aging and the knowledge of treating mental illness. And we re need research on those people because um, it's complex. Um, and it also seems like it's about expanding our concept of what mental health is. Mm -hmm. And like you and I have talked about, perhaps people during elderhood years might actually be better at um, connecting and, and forging ties of belonging. And those things ultimately affect mental health. So that would be another interesting sort of... Right, or realizing that social isolation is actually really bad mm -hmm. for your health. And so staying more connected is exactly. really good. Mm -hmm. um, but also realizing that when we think about it, like if we're talking about an illness, if we're, you know, say it's depression, we should think like, what's different about a depression in a child, in an adult, in an elder? Uh, and and not also writing it off as, well, of course, they're depressed, they're old and sick, <laughs> you know, because there are lots of, I, you know, I've been doing this for decades, there are lots of old sick people who are not depressed. So that means they don't necessarily go hand in hand. That's a bit like saying, well, um, you know, the old joke of, of the two knees and the guy goes in and his knee hurts and the doctor says, well, what do you expect? You're in your 90s. And he says, my other knee's in its 90s too, and it doesn't hurt a bit. <laughs> so... Um, I love that. It's my favorite joke of all time. Um, but we have to say the same thing with mental illness. You know, being 92 does not necessarily make you depressed. So. Thank you so much, Louise. Thank and you. we're going to wrap in a moment and we have a um, book signing outside. And Denise, did you want to? Yeah. Our out? thanks to Louise Aronson and Janera. Nirenberg for their her, their comments here tonight. And this concludes our program on elderhood, um, celebrating 116 years of enlightened discussion. <laughs>